All right, good to see everyone tonight. And uh, we're in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to read 18 through 25. So Matthew chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 18. And I think what we'll do, we'll see what time it is when we finish this section. And then if uh, we have time, we might read the Sermon on the Mount because that's what we'll come into uh, next time. Uh, And that's a significant uh, sermon, uh, teaching of Christ. So we might uh, finish by reading that and then we'll pick up in Matthew 5 next week. Okay, okay. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time to meet together tonight to study your word. And Lord, we do ask that you would uh, grant to us a greater measure of faith. Lord, that your spirit would be with us. Lord, that he would lead and guide us into all truth. Lord, that we would not resist or reject your word, but that we would believe it. And that, Lord, we would be quick to obey and to do all that it calls us uh, to do. Lord, we ask that uh, you be with those who are away from us tonight, Lord, knowing that there are several families that are uh, dealing with sickness even now. Lord, we pray that you would uh, restore them to good health, Lord, so that they might be with us again and be with them as they are uh, at home. And Lord, be with them, watch over them, and bless them during this time. Uh, so Lord, we ask for you to bless us. Lord, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we began uh, last week with the ministry of Christ and how it is that he began his public ministry uh, and the, where it began at and then also a summation of what it is that Jesus was teaching, right? The summary of his message, which was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, in these two sections that in chapter four, you have uh, both Uh, a glimpse into his disciples. So a large part of what Jesus does is going to be with his disciples, uh, discipling them, training them, preparing them, because what he begins in his ministry, and his ministry was only about three years long, but what he begins, they are going to continue after him, and then they're going to be the ones that are used by God to take the gospel out of the area of Israel and into the nations, and it's going to begin to spread. And this is the shift that we see from the old to the new. Uh, The same message of salvation, but that message of salvation was confined almost exclusively to the people of Israel uh, from the time of Abraham until the time of Christ. And then from the time of Christ to the end of the world, that same message of salvation that the Old Testament saints believed is now being proclaimed into many nations, and it will be his apostles 
who are the ones that take that gospel into the nations and it begins to spread through them. And then they will also be the ones who write the books of the New Testament. So the books that are included in the Christian canon in the New Testament, everything from Matthew to Revelation, were written by apostles of Christ or those who were closely associated with apostles of Christ, like, for example, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but Mark was closely associated with Peter, and that is his source of information for how it is that he was able to conduct and write these things. So they are the ones who then write the remaining uh, books of the Bible so that we have the completed canon from Genesis to Revelation in our Bible. So here it gives us a couple of examples of how it is that Jesus called some of his first disciples, and then later on it'll give us a list of who these disciples were, the 12 that were there uh, that followed him. So here we have uh, a few of them that were called, and these are uh, significant ones who play a prominent role. So we'll begin there in verse 18. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So here, walking by the Sea of Galilee, so this is that area uh, in the north northeastern part of the land of Israel where the Sea of Galilee is, and this is where Jesus went to the area of Capernaum and where he spent a lot of his time was here around the sea. And because it's on the Sea of Galilee, one of the prominent businesses or occupations that people had there was to be fishermen. That They would go out, they would fish in the sea, and then they would go and sell uh, their fish in the markets. And there he sees two brothers, one Simon, who is also called Peter, and who we also know is called Cephas. So he had multiple names, uh, and he would go by these various names. So Simon, who is also Peter, Simon Peter, and then his brother, Andrew. And both of them are fishermen. They are casting their net into the sea, and he calls them to come and follow after him. And he tells them that I will make you fishers of men, right? Now you're fishing for fish, right? This is what you do. But from now on, instead of fishing for fish, you're going to be fishing for men, right? And the way that they will fish for men is through the preaching of the gospel. That when the gospel is proclaimed, when the word of God is proclaimed, we read a parable last week, it is like a net being cast into the sea, right? In that many fish are brought in, some good and some bad. And this is the way that it is in the preaching of the gospel. So instead of casting literal nets for literal fish, they're going to be casting a symbolic net, which is the preaching of the word of God, to catch symbolic fish, which are people, right? Souls. They're going to be fishing for the souls of men through the preaching of the gospel. And this is the means God has established, right, in, in order to draw his elect into the flock of God or into uh, the kingdom of Christ. He uses men. He uses earthen vessels. He places the treasure of the gospel within them. He puts it in their mouth and on their lips. And then he uses men, common men like this, to be his messengers to call men out of darkness and into light. And this is the case here. And these are common men. They're common fishermen. All right, we know in Acts that whenever they begin their ministry, the uh, scribes and Pharisees, the educated, they were surprised, they were amazed because they knew that these were uneducated men. 
And how is it that they were able to argue and reason and have such a knowledge and competency of the scriptures and to know all the things that they knew? And it was because they were with Christ. So while they did not have formal training, and, and they are uneducated in that sense and common in that sense, they did have a better training than what the scribes and Pharisees did because they sat in the school of Christ. And Christ is the best teacher of the Bible to ever walk on the face of the earth. And he taught them. So they're not just uh, country bumpkins, people who have no training. They have very thorough training. It's just not in institutions and it's not in this formal setting that is common, right? Their training is with Christ and he teaches them very thoroughly. And much of Christ's ministry is focused on the 12 and then the larger group of disciples that are with him. We know that there was the 70, and then there was a larger number there on the day of Pentecost that were gathered together, right? And so much of his ministry is focused on these men who will be the ones that carry on the ministry after Christ and take the gospel to the ends of the world. And so he calls them to follow, and immediately they leave their nets and they follow him. So here they are faithful, right? They answer the call. He calls them and they leave. They leave, they leave their former life behind and now they have been called to this new task to go and be fishers of men. So they're no longer gonna be preoccupied with the things of this world, with their former calling, right? They're going to be occupied with the preaching of the gospel, right? From this time forward, though there is some setbacks here and there. So they leave their nets and follow him. And then going from there, he sees two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. So here, at least four of the apostles were fishermen, and all from this same area, from this same region together. And here, the three, Peter, James, John, right? They were the three who were the most prominent, preeminent, among the apostles, right? They're the ones that are always listed first. They're the three that were taken with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They are the three who went in with him when he healed Jairus' daughter or raised her from the dead. So they have a special place, special privileges, right, that are given to them, right, that are even withheld from some of the other apostles, Peter, James, and John, and all of them from the same region, all of them fishermen, all of them common common ordinary men, right? So they are there and they're with their father Zebedee and he calls them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him, right? Which reminds us that if we're gonna follow Christ and if we're gonna love Christ, we have to love him more than our father, more than our mother, more than our wife, more than our children, more than any relation that we have on this earth. He has to be supreme. He has to be number one in our life. And here when Christ call them to leave their father, right? Leave the business that they did with him, right? They worked with him every day. They were with him every day in this way. He called them to leave that. Then they left it. They left it and they followed after Christ and they went and did the will of God. Okay, a couple of passages uh, for cross-references. First, John chapter one. John chapter one. In verse 35, John 1, 35. 
says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to him, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here we see that the calling of Peter, which is mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, came about through his brother Andrew. It was Andrew who went and told Peter these things, and Andrew also was a disciple of John the Baptist. So these men were not unfamiliar with the gospel, with the things of God. They already knew these things, right? And that's one of the things we remember in Acts chapter 1, when they're replacing Judas Iscariot, one of the qualifications for the man who will replace Judas is that he had to be among them from the time of John until the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, right? Well, here you see that Andrew is one of John's disciples. So they were those who were already interested in the things of God. They were already believing the gospel. They had already heard these things being taught by John, and they were serious enough that they were disciples of John. And then John is with them, and when Jesus comes by, he tells his disciples, this is the Lamb of God who is going to be the one that takes away the sins of the world, which he had already told them before. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John had been preaching because John knew that he was the forerunner of the Christ. So he had been preaching to the people that there was one coming after him who was mightier than him because he is before him and that he was not worthy to untie his sandals and that he's the one that's going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. That's what John is preaching to the people. And then he's with his disciples and he's telling them, the one I've been preaching about, this is the man who is here, who's standing in your presence. That's the one that I've been preaching about. And so Andrew followed Jesus. He went, he followed him. And then that's when Jesus asked him, what are you seeking, right? Why are you following me? What are you looking for, right? Testing him to see why is it that he's coming after me? And that's when he calls him rabbi or teacher, and he wants to know where you are staying. And so he goes and stays with him that day and uh, into the next. Then he goes and tells his brother Peter that we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, right? We have found him, meaning they were looking for him, right? How can you find someone that you don't know about? which is what many people believe, that no one in the Old Testament knew about the coming Messiah. It's ridiculous. Of course they knew about him. Here, they're looking for him, and we found him. He's here, right? We know who he is, and he brought him to Jesus. And then Jesus tells Simon uh, that you're going to be called Cephas, which means Peter. Then verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So now we have Philip. So we know 
Peter, Andrew, we know James and John, were all from this same area. But now also Philip is from this area as well, from the same city as Andrew and Peter. And then Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Philip tells Nathanael, we have found the Christ, right? We found the one that Moses wrote about and the prophets wrote about, the one that we've been waiting for, that we've been looking for. We have found him and he is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the man, the person who is here on earth right now that Moses and the prophets predicted and wrote about. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So Nathanael is skeptical. Skeptical at first, because how can anything good come from this region? But Philip encourages him, well, come and see yourself. Come and meet him yourself, and then you'll see and you'll know that what I'm telling you is true. Okay, so come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Here, Peter, or Jesus, seeing Nathanael, tells him something about himself, right? That he couldn't know because he's never met him before, right? That you are a Israelite indeed, meaning a true Israelite, not merely one outwardly, but inwardly. You are an, Israel, an Israelite indeed because there's no deceit in you, right? Deceit is a attribute or characteristic of a wicked person, but not of a righteous person, right? Not that righteous people are completely pure of all deceit. There may be some, but what is true of their life, generally speaking, is that they don't lie. They tell the truth. And he was a man who was truthful. There was no deceit in him, and he was a true Israelite because he was a man of faith. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So now he's revealing things about Nathaniel that no one else could know, that he can only know by the power and by a miracle from God. That before I met you, before uh, Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, which is also a characteristic uh, of the righteous, that they would sit under their fig trees to meditate on the things of God, right? That this is a sign of God's blessing upon the people of Israel is that the men would be able to sit under their fig trees, right, and meditate upon the things of God and enjoy peace and prosperity in that way. Well, this is what Nathaniel is doing. He's sitting under the fig tree, sitting there, similar to what Isaac was doing when they brought uh, Rebekah to him, that he was out in the field meditating, out meditating in the field. This is what they would do, the righteous. And at this, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the son of God, right? So he knows right here that he's the son of God, that he is God in human flesh, God incarnate. You are the king of Israel. He knows that he is the king of Israel. So he knows already that he is both the king of Israel and that the king of Israel promised to David would also be the son of God. And he already knows all these things, having met Jesus one time. So how does he know these things? The Old Testament. They're taught in the Old Testament. It didn't just come to him immediately. All of a sudden, it was confirmed to him, but all of these truths were taught in the Old Testament. Jesus answered him, 
Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So this is a confirmation, a praise to Nathaniel, right? That he saw a very small miracle and he believed and came to the right conclusion. Well, you haven't seen anything yet. You're going to see even greater things than this, which is going to give you more confirmation that I am the son of God and that I am the king of Israel. You, he says, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So you're going to see even mightier things than this. Okay, also, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. In verse 23. Matthew 19, 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So there, Peter asks them, or says to him, right, in contrast to the rich young man, right, the rich ruler who was unwilling to part with his possessions in order to follow Christ, right, he wasn't willing to do that, right, which leads first to this explanation of then, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus tells them, well, it takes a miracle of God, right? right. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then this is when Peter says, he rightly concludes, well, we've left everything to follow you. What the rich young ruler was unwilling to do, Peter and the other disciples were willing to do. We've left everything and we have followed you. So what will we have, right? What will be our reward because of what we've done when this other was unwilling to do so. And then Jesus confirms to them that in the life to come, right, in the new world, right, in the new heavens and new earth, they will rule and reign with Christ. This is what they are going to have. And that everyone who in this life leaves houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, land, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold in the life to come and will inherit eternal life. So there is a reward for following after Christ, even if it means giving up the things of this life, giving up our family, giving up our treasures, our possessions, right? We will not lose out in the end, right? We might temporarily lose something, but we will gain it back in the life to come. And in Luke's account of this, of this he says that you also gain it back in this life, right? In this life, you may lose your earthly father, right, your biological father, but in the church, you'll gain spiritual fathers, 
You may lose your earthly mother or your earthly brothers and sisters, but in the church, you'll gain spiritual brothers and sisters, a spiritual mother, right? You may have the government confiscate your property, but then your Christian brothers, they will share their property with you so that you don't lack anything. You'll have all that you need. So you'll gain both in this life and then in the life to come, you'll get eternal life and you'll receive a hundredfold of what it is you've given up. So this is what awaits those who follow Christ. Now, one last passage, Mark chapter five. Here we'll see that we might say, well, we're not, uh, we're not apostles, we're not disciples, which is true. They had a unique calling upon them to follow Christ and then even to the, the type of ministry that they conducted Right? It wasn't one where they were in one place, where they were stable, secure. They were traveling here and there, doing all of these types of things. And we might say, well, then uh, God hasn't called us to that, so we're not going to have the blessing. But not everyone is called to what they were called to. And even in Jesus' lifetime, there were people who wanted to follow him and he wouldn't let them, but told them to go to their home, Stay where they're at and tell everyone, your friends and your family, all that God has done. So just because we may not be going to some distant land, right? We may not be traveling here and there preaching the gospel, right? For many of us, we'll live in this area our whole life. And then with many in the church, their, their normal occupation isn't even in teaching the Bible like it is for the pastor or for the minister. But even though we may not be called in the way that the apostles were, or we may not be called in terms of public ministry, the teaching of the word, that doesn't mean that we can't follow Christ. And it doesn't mean that Christ won't reward us, that we are also called to follow him and be faithful to him wherever he's placed us and do what God has called us to do. Mark chapter five, verse 18. This is the demoniac who was healed by Christ. And as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So the demoniac wanted to go with Jesus. He begged him that he might go with him. And he, we might say, he would be a trophy, right? A trophy that could be presented and brought forward as evidence of what God had done. Isn't this what people like to do? They like to throw these trophies up on the big stage. Uh, and as a way of getting the crowds to come and doing these things, getting their money, yes. Verse 19, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So Jesus said, no, you're not coming with me you're not going to be allowed to be one of the apostles or one of the disciples, but you need to go back to your home and tell all your friends everything that God has done for you. Right. Okay, well, we can, can't we all do the same thing? No doubt. This is what we're called to do, to tell our friends, tell our family, tell anyone that we meet who's willing to listen, this is what God has done for me. This is the blessings of God. So not everyone is called in this way, Right. It's based upon the gifting of God, right? Each one receives a gift according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
this is how we have to be. We have to receive what God has given us and then whatever we're called to do, be faithful in that occupation and be faithful in the sphere that God has placed us. Okay, verse 23 says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now we have a summary of the ministry of Christ. We've had a summary of his sermon, his preaching, what he proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now this is telling us what his ministry was like on a day-to-day basis, right? What is it that he was occupied with? What was his mind set upon? Well, it says that he went throughout all of Galilee, right? So he traveled through this area, through this region, right? From town to town. And what was the main focus of what he did? Well, what does it mention first? Teaching, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So the primary thing that Jesus did, right? What we have to have in our mind is that he was first and foremost, he was a teacher and a preacher of righteousness. This is what Christ did while he was on this earth. So if we want to be like Christ, what do we need to do? We need to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We need to preach the word of God in the same way that Jesus preached. So he came primarily to teach, to teach the people about who God is, the way of salvation, how to live a life that is pleasing to God. This is what he spent his time doing, and he did it wherever he had an audience. He would go to the synagogues because he knew in the synagogues, in the towns, there were people that were gathered there to study the Bible, right? That's why they went to the synagogue was to read from the scriptures. So he knew there were people there. He knew that the Bible was going to be there. People had some interest in the Bible. So he would go there and he would read from the scriptures and then he would teach the people, teach them what the Bible says, interpreting the Bible correctly so that the people knew and understood who God was, how to be reconciled to him and how to live a life pleasing to God. So he's teaching and he's preaching. And then in addition to this, he's healing, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The healing is there not to take away from the teaching, not to take the spotlight off of the Bible. The healing is there to support the Bible to support the teaching, to confirm the teaching to the people. That's why he's healing. He's healing so that the people know this man is from God, so we better listen to what he says. We better believe and obey and do what he tells us to do. So the the healing was there for the sake of bolstering, supporting, right, confirming what it is that he was saying so that the people would believe the word of God for their salvation. Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. And faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes by the word of Christ. So the healing is for the purpose of bringing attention to the teaching, right? Not taking it away from it. Now I say that in contrast 
to the false healing ministries that go on today where the word of God is an afterthought to them. They're not even, when they are opening the Bible, they're not interpreting it correctly. And then it's an afterthought to what is going on. But the real focus is on the so-called healings that are taking place. And that's what they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about the Bible. They don't want to talk about the things of God. I know this because just last week, I met with one of these uh, lunatics and all he wanted to talk about was his experiences and all the things that he had seen and the miracles that he had seen, which I wanted, I should have asked him. I should have said, let's go right now to the hospital, right? We'll go to the Shawnee Hospital. We'll find someone who's sick and you can heal them on the spot and then I'll see it and I'll believe. I should have said it and I didn't. So, but next time, next time I'm ready. So let us see these things, right? So that's what's happening today. But that's not what Jesus was doing. He was teaching first and foremost, and then the healing was supplemental to the teaching ministry, right? To show them that what he's saying about spiritual realities, what he's saying that he can do for them spiritually, heal them of their disease, which is sin. Forgive them of their trespasses. Give them eternal life with God, right? That you know that I can do this, because I have the power to raise the dead. I have the power to give the lame their legs back, to open the eyes of the blind, right? To heal people of these various diseases and afflictions. And me healing them of this lesser affliction is proof to you that I can heal you of your greater affliction, which is sin. Sin, death, and the condemnation that is coming that we all deserve. So that's what he's, he's doing. And as a result of his healing, his fame spread throughout all Syria. Right? This is typically the case. The fame doesn't spread because of the teaching. The fame spreads because of the healing. Now, it does bring many people to hear him, but then he opens his mouth, and what happens to them? The majority of them, they go away, right? They go away because they're not coming for the right reasons. It gives him an audience, and he uses that, but he ultimately, many of them will go away. So the fame is spreading, and it's giving him the opportunity to preach the gospel, and then the people are bringing those who are sick, afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. So he's healing them of all these various kinds of diseases, and there's nothing that is too difficult for him. There's no disease, no condition that a man has that is too difficult that Jesus cannot heal them. He's right. able to heal them of all of these various diseases. And as a result, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So from everywhere, all this area that we would think of when we think of Israel, Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, and then even beyond the Jordan, Many people are coming and they're following him and they're listening to what he has to say. And then that sets the stage for Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is a great crowd comes around him and then he goes up and he teaches them, right? He teaches them on the sermon on, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, where he gives this great uh, exposition of the word of God. Okay, a couple of passages. First, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, 
in verse 1. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here, Nicodemus knows and understands. Right? They're seeing the signs, and they know that no one can do these things unless God is with them. That These are clear evidences that God is with him. Right? Well, if God is with him, then you should listen to him. Right? You should obey him. You should do what he tells you to do. So the signs are there to prove to the people that he was from God. And in Nicodemus's case, and many of the other Pharisees, they knew and understood that in their mind, but it wasn't, they weren't understanding it in their heart because they weren't believing, right? It didn't lead to true faith, right? True faith. Okay, then chapter nine, at least at this point with Nicodemus. I think with Nicodemus, there is evidence that later on, he does become a believer, but at this point in John chapter 3, he doesn't have understanding. John chapter 9, verse uh, 30. Well, actually, let's pick up in verse 24. This is the man born blind uh, who Jesus healed of his blindness. And then they are trying to... Uh, Pharisees and the scribes are trying to investigate and find out, is he really blind or not? Right? He's telling them he is, but they won't believe it because uh, how did this happen? So they call his parents in and ask his parents, is he blind or not? They sell him out and say he's of age, ask him because they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. So now they call the blind men back in and they're going to ask him uh, what happened. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Speaking of Jesus. So we know Jesus is a sinner, but we can't make heads or tails of the fact that you were blind and now you can see and how it is that he was able to do this. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? See, this guy has a little sass in him, which I like, right? I like a little spunk, a little sarcasm, right? This is what he's saying here. So, yes, do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. So you see there how corrupt they are in their understanding. Who are they, who are they putting against Moses? Jesus. Jesus and Moses. Contrary to one another. But they're not contrary to one another. right? In their mind they are, but not truly. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Right, so here's their hang-up. Okay, we know God spoke through Moses, but this man, we don't know where he comes from. We don't know where he gets his credentials, where his seal of approval is from. Where is he from? The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from? 
yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So this man is appalled. He's shocked. He's amazed. Right? How do you not know where this man came from? Yeah. Right? He opened my eyes. I was blind. I see. He at least understands that there's no way a sinner could do this. Only God can do this. Only God can open the eyes of a man born blind. So this man who did this had to be from God. This is the only logical conclusion to draw, that he is from God. So for him then, the miracle was verification or proof that Jesus was from God. And then later, when he meets him again, he believes in him. Now he believes in him because he has this confirmation. Okay, John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 31. Speaking of sarcasm, here's some more. Here's some more sarcasm laid on by Jesus. Okay, John chapter 10, verse 31. So when you use sarcasm in the right way, you're being Christ-like, okay? You're being Christ-like when you do it. John 10, 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from my father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Right? So here they're about to kill him. And he says, which good work? Right? What miracle that I've performed? Right? What person that I've healed is the basis for you putting me to death? Right? That's what he wants to know from them. The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So there... Even if you don't believe my own testimony, at least believe the works, right? Because it's obvious from the works that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The Father is in me, I am in the Father. This was a passage that came up in our discussion with the heretic the other day as well. Because he said, Jesus is the Father. No, the Father, he said that Jesus said, I am the Father. He didn't say that. He says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, which necessitates how many persons? At least two, two, right? At least two. (laughs) He was unconvinced. Okay, all right. Well, they will not be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 27. John 12:27 says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. So this voice that came from heaven, promising to glorify the Son, right? To I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. That Jesus is praying for God to glorify his name in his person and in his work. And the Father attests that he is going to, he has done this and he will continue to do it in the person of Christ. Now, is the Father making this audible declaration because Jesus is lacking in faith? Because Jesus doesn't believe that God is going to do this? No. So who's it, who is he saying this for? He's not saying it for the sake of Christ because Jesus doubts what God has called him to do. He's saying it for the people, right? So that they might know and understand that Jesus is God's son and that God is going to glorify himself supremely in the person of Christ and in his work. So this miracle of God speaking from heaven, right, is not for the sake of Christ, but it is for the sake of those who are there with him, right, for their sake. Okay, then one other passage, Mark chapter 12. I mean, Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, 1 to 12. Mark 2, verse 1. says, When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Notice there again. He's preaching the word to them. This is what he does. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed, they let uh, down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Right. Now here, again, they're coming because he's a paralytic to have him healed of this physical disease. But Jesus turns it into a spiritual issue. Right. He goes to the issue of sin, right, to the issue of sin. He does this on purpose. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out from before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So there, which is easier to say, right? Uh, rise, pick up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven, right? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, right? Which is a invisible transaction, right? It's not something you can see with your eyes, right? right? This is spiritual. This is something that happens before God. So it's not happening in this physical, tangible, present world, something that you can see, but somebody who's a paralytic getting up and walking, that is something that you can see, 
And the healing of the paralytic that they would see with their eyes is to teach them so that they would know Jesus has authority to forgive sins, right? For this greater purpose. This would be like the Lord's Supper, right? In these physical elements, we're taught a spiritual truth. And here, the physical illustration is the healing of the paralytic to teach them the greater spiritual truth of the forgiveness of sins. Because not all of us need our legs healed, but all of us need our sins forgiven. And who's the one that can do that? Only Christ. Only Christ can do those things. So here, the miracles then are for the sake of pointing people to spiritual realities and the forgiveness of sins, salvation, and they're there to support the teaching of the Bible because that's how salvation comes about. It comes about through the preaching of the gospel, right? Through the preaching of the gospel. So Jesus isn't doing the miracles to make money, to get fame and fortune. He's not doing it for those reasons. Again, this is in contrast to what is happening today in many areas of the world where the so-called miracle workers will only work a miracle if you give them money, right? They do it for money, for fame, for fortune, but Jesus isn't doing it for those reasons at all. And then one last passage concerning this is Luke 16. Luke 16, verse 27. This is the rich man and Lazarus. And after the rich man is denied any comfort right, uh, because of his torment, then he makes a request of Abraham. 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So there, miracles cannot change hearts, cannot lead to true repentance. But what can lead to true repentance? Moses and the prophets. The Spirit of Christ using the Word of Christ, that's what leads to repentance, right? These things. And if they won't listen to the Bible, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if a dead man comes back to life if they see a blind man healed, right? That was the context of John chapter 10, right? Where, where they're trying to stone Jesus is after the healing of the blind man, right? None of those things matter. If they won't believe the Bible, they won't believe even if there's a miracle. So the miracles are there according to the will of God, but they are not essential for salvation. What is essential is the preaching of the gospel. That's what needs to happen. And this is what needs to be the focus of our ministries and the things that we're doing uh, day to day in the life of the church and in our own families as well. Okay, so I think we'll stop there tonight. And I think we will stop there. So we talked about maybe reading some more, but I wanted to see kind of how far we got. And we'll just stop there and we'll pick up in chapter five through seven uh, next week.